we're made in America. Uh, so we're the only charging company that's made in America. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Today is January 25th, 2022. I'm Eric Planey. I am Lucas Finko. And special guest today is... Paul Vosper. Good morning. Good afternoon. Wherever you're listening. <laughs> exactly. Well, with that, the three of us today are the Pirates of Clean Tech. Yar. 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 <laughs> All right. oh, that's pretty good. That was good. Yeah. Most of our guests are a little bit reluctant, but by the end of the episode, we get a really good yar out of them. So, <laughs> well, my my family comes from uh, Cornwall in England, uh, which is uh, you know very well known for its pirates. So, uh, oh well, then it's uh, it's in the DNA then. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> we had uh, we had the former CEO of Aston Martin on last year, and and he thought our yar was too American, and I don't know what he did, but it, it didn't sound like anything related to a pirate to me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, first off, uh, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. We hope everyone is staying safe uh, and uh, staying warm. It's been frigid here in the Northeast. Um, but we have a great episode today, and it's our first guest in probably three or four episodes. Um, we've had a lot of people asking us and talking to us about electric vehicles, and particularly their reluctance to purchase an electric vehicle because of charging infrastructure in the United States. And so we wanted to get into it from what's happening in charging infrastructure, what's happening in this country, what growth projections are there, and how people can get comfortable purchasing an electric vehicle if they so choose, having comfort with EV charging. And so Paul is the CEO of a great company called Juice Bar, which has been really in high growth mode for, uh, I think, several years now. I think you kind of merged into it in 2018. So Paul, why don't you give us a little bit of your background and tell us how you came into your position at Juice Bar, and then we can go into some questions about the industry. Sure. Well, my, you know, uh, it, it all started, as you said, in 2018. I, I spent a career uh, in real estate um, and uh, commercial real estate. So when my, uh, my business partner, Jeff Mayer, asked me to uh, help him uh, do the due diligence and, uh, and see if we'd be interested in buying the company, I, my first reaction is I can barely change the battery in a children's toy. Uh, why me? And he very pressurely said... Uh, because you know about par- you know about real estate, and every single one of these chargers needs to go in a parking lot, and parking lots real estate. So that's kind of how I got started in it. Um, but it's been a it's been a fascinating journey. I mean, it's uh, you know we've torn up our business plan uh, pretty much every quarter. Um, we've vast, <laughs> vastly uh, under under projected the EV adoption rates, but uh, but you're right. It's uh, you know we we are moving into a world that is going to be very different. Um, and it's, it's moving very, very quickly. So uh, thank you for that. And I agree that the, the growth rate, I think I saw a statistic this morning that uh, last year was it almost 3% of vehicles purchased in the U.S. were mm-hmm. electric vehicles, which is a really significant number versus where it has been. So yeah. let, me, let me start with the, the confusion that people have about EV charging. And, and, and it mm-hmm. seems to be two things for me. One is the different types of chargers used in vehicles and the perception that if I buy an electric vehicle, I may not be able to go to the grocery store and use that particular charger. That's number one. And then secondly, there doesn't seem to be in the United States and maybe even globally a cohesive strategy to put vehicle chargers where they need to be. And nobody seems to really know where they need to go, or at least it hasn't been clearly disseminated to the public yet. And that's why there's a little bit of skepticism. 
So sure. maybe with your, your real estate background, talk a little bit of also about, you know, how do we get this country to really embrace and adopt EV charging infrastructure so people can be all in on purchasing the vehicle? Yeah. Well, I think, I think you've got to look at it first in terms of what gets the most charges in the most locations. There's going to be some challenging locations. There are going to be things that are, are harder to do than, than easier to do. But if you look at it from, a, uh, from, you know, let's get as many charges into the ground as possible, as quickly as possible. You've got to, first of all, I think, uh, divorce your mentality from the gas station. So if you're an EV driver, it's much more like your cell phone. You're either charging at night while you're sleeping or you're charging during the day while you're in the office uh, or at the hotel or at the hospital or you know any location where you're going to be three, four hours. And the vast majority of your driving falls into that, uh, into that category. Most people, you know, the average driver drives 30 miles a day. Um, vehicles, uh, I have a two-year-old EV that does 240 miles of range. So I'm not even charging every day. I'm charging three or four times a week, uh, unless I'm going on long distance. So let's, you know, that's the backbone, right? The backbone is to get chargers in office buildings, hotels, apartment complexes, multifamily. If you're lucky enough to have a a garage uh, and enough power in your house, you can put a charger in your garage. Uh, You know, that's like having a gas station in your garage. And, you know, that was really great when COVID first hit because I wasn't having to go to a gas station and we're all worried about touching stuff. Um, but that's really, you know, really think about rather than going somewhere specific to charge, the charging environment is you charge while you're doing something else. Um, and it's typically, you know, working or sleeping uh, when it comes down to the vast majority of it. And so that also means that the, uh, the vast majority of charging can be accommodated with level two chargers. Well, level two chargers are nothing more than a high powered connection to a to the commercial charging speed. So in your home, most of your plugs are 110 volts. You've got 220 or 240 going into your dryer. So my, my charger is connected to my dryer circuit um, so I can charge at 220 volts. Um, that's what's in the office, mostly 208 to 240. That's plenty to accommodate. I mean, that, you know, you can recharge your vehicle from zero within three to six hours, depending on the speed of the charger. Um, so if I show up for work at eight o'clock in the morning or nine o'clock in the morning, uh, well before five o'clock, I've got a full charge. Um, if I go to bed at night, uh, with 20% left in my battery by six o'clock in the morning, I've got a fully charged vehicle. And that's, that deals with 95% of your driving uh, needs. You, you need the fast chargers. So the, typically those are the ones you see on the highway, the superchargers, the Tesla makes, or the Electrify America or EVgo. Um, you know, that, that, you know, but uh, that's only about 5% of the miles driven. So you, you don't, you know, we need, we need those chargers uh, because nobody buys a car uh, or very few, but at least my age, we don't buy cars uh, for different trips. We buy one car typically for our longest trip. Um, so people want need to be comfortable that they can drive to Boston to see grandma at Thanksgiving um, and charge up if they need to along the way. But that's a very small fraction of what you actually do. So I, you know, my experience as an EV driver has been 
I use a, a fast charger maybe three or four times a year. The vast majority of what I do is is charging at home or charging at the office. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I, I own an EV. And again, yes, I use a fast charger maybe a handful of times a year. You know, when I go on mm-hmm. a, a trip up to the lake or what have you, yeah. right? I yeah. use the ones on the throughway. So, yeah. Um, yeah, the vast majority of the time, the the vehicle is in the top quarter state of charge and it charges every night. Mm-hmm. And we do that to try and keep the, the battery uh, maintained. And, and we even just use a trickle charger off of the wall. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so for... For that application, that's why I've been a bit a big advocate that that any two vehicle household should have one EV, right? At least, um, just as getting around town, going to work, these things are perfect for EV use. Um, everything except traveling cross country, right? So, well, let me uh, let me go back to a statement you made because a couple of things really hit me. One is I love your analogy comparing it to how you use your cell phone, because I don't think people think of that. Um, and that was kind of a light bulb that went off in my head. Mm-hmm. When I, said it. I think we all kind of had that reaction. The second part, too, is the idea of decoupling ourselves mentally from the idea of the gas station and to, you know, to charge while you're either at work or in the office. If, if the American psyche got away from this, this fear and phobia of range anxiety and also didn't think about the gas station, you know, because I think a lot of people say, what am I going to do for 25 minutes when I go to the gas station and the charge takes that long? Mm-hmm. If we pull back from that, do you think our, like our stakeholders in EV charging, our politicians, our regulators, you know, um, and our corporate CEOs in charging companies, would we be smarter about where charging stations are going right now? Or are we already on that trend of putting them in the right place at the right time, but maybe the word isn't out just quite yet? Yeah, look, I, I think um, uh, a lot of people are grappling with this because it's brand new technology. And so, uh, but it's really not that complicated. I mean, it, it, it's complicated. We, we, like any industry, we complicate things with buzzwords and, and so on. But when it comes down to it, it's where's the dwell time? Uh, you know, where are cars sitting for three or four hours? Um, and so, you know, it's not, you know, we, we talk to a lot of politicians, we talk to a lot of policymakers, um, and they get it. Uh, it's not, you know, we don't have to, we're not explaining, a, you know, um, physics or a black box uh, hedge fund or something. So uh, it's pretty straightforward. Um, you know, I think there is, you know, we're, we're talking to one state, for example, that has some allocation from the, from the federal infrastructure bill, and they you know, were asking us our view, and I said, well, put it. You've got a lot of municipal parking lots that most of the downtown areas is owned, you know, the parking lots around by the municipality, put them there because they're visible. Um, and so if you look at, you know, what London did, my hometown, uh, it sprinkled EV charges around the city, but in, in public visible street locations so that pe- as people are driving around, they can see visibly the charges. And once you start seeing charges, your overrange anxiety goes away. Once you own an EV, um, you know, uh, you, 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 you know, you find that you don't really have range anxiety. Um, and it's going to get less because the vehicles are coming now with longer and longer range. So, you know, my car is two years old. It's at, you know, 240 miles of range. That was good two years ago today. You know, I, you know, I think probably 300 to 350 is kind of good. We'll be at 400 and 450, uh, by the end of the year. 
Um, and we're already seeing at the luxury end of the market, the Mercedes and, and Lucid Air at 500 to 600 miles of range. Uh, that will start spreading down to more uh, affordable vehicles. So it's not, it's not out of the realm of possibility within two or three years, we see 700 miles of range, which means, you know, you think about 700 miles of range, that's about the maximum you could drive in a day anyway. Uh, you know, you'd have to be pretty brutal. It's a pretty brutal day if you're driving 700 miles, but that's enough for me to drive to see my son in, in DC and get back home here in Connecticut um, and have range left over. So I'm not even going to pull in, you know, at 20 minutes, I'm not even going to bother to pull in and uh, charge. I'm, I might connect it to a charger where I'm going to get, a, you know, going to get something to eat or you know, go to the bathroom, but I'm not doing it because I need to, I'm doing it just because I might as well top off while I'm doing something else. But, you know, that, you know, that's really where, you know, once we get to 700 miles of range, there is no range anxiety. Um, and we're seeing, you know, and, and the private market is responding. I mean, hotels, you know, if you don't have a charger in your hotel right now, you're losing business. Uh, because I, you know, when I'm driving, you know, when I drive to DC, I have to stop. Uh, I have to stay at a hotel that has a charger because um, I need that overnight charge to get, you know, to, uh, to get up and running again. So, you know, so if you're, and that, you know, the, the demographics of EV drivers are, you know, typically uh, millennials uh, in you know, families, uh, higher educated and higher, more affluent. Uh, so for most of the hotel chains, that's their, that's their sweet spot uh, of customer. So, you know, while we only may be at 3% across the nation, when you start digging into the millennials, not only are they more, uh, are they adopted EVs more quickly, but they're, but they're saying to the pollsters, they, their next car will be an EV. And so we're going to see that growth very quickly um, in, the, in, that, in that high purchasing, high valued market. Paul, could you talk about Juice Bar a little bit and where Juice Bar came from and, and how, that, how that experience has gone? Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, the, the, the origins of uh, Juice Bar were, uh, we were originally owned by ProPark. Um, and I think that's very important from a uh, from a, from the way in which we set up and continue to manage the company. So, you know, Pro Park manages parking lots on behalf of customers. They they own parking lots of their own. So, to them, what was very very important is reliability. You know, the charger has to be a good quality charger. Has to be reliable. Has to work uh, because you know otherwise their customer, whether that's the driver or the, the building owner, um, you know, it it damages their brand. And so we've, we've maintained that philosophy. And I'll say that uh, in general, uh, one, of the, the, you know, one of the areas where there is range anxiety is, is really in the quality of the chargers. The chargers are not as reliable as they should be across the industry. And there's nothing worse than going on plug share, seeing a charger that's, you know, that's right where you need it to be, getting there, and the damn thing doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And, I, I, and I would say that, uh, it's it's gotten better, but you know on the highway side, uh, and I'm I'm somebody who knows how to operate a charger. I know I know the tricks, and I probably have you know about twenty percent of the time I have a problem. So if I'm having a problem twenty percent of the time, God knows what the, uh, the I mean I'll, you know I'll I'll uh, I'll do some things you're not supposed to do with a charger because um, I know what I'm doing, but uh, <laughs> but uh, to try and get it to work. Uh, but you know so we've we've got to get for mass adoption. Uh, we've got to have the same reliability as a gas pump. 
And if you pulled into a gas station and it didn't work, you'd be shocked. Um, so while I don't like to talk about the gas station as an analogy, I do think about the gas stations from a, from a reliability point of view. Um, so we've done a ton of work to make sure our charges are reliable, that they work and that they operate. As I said, we, you know, we operate anywhere from, you know, an Arizona summer to a, uh, to a Northern Canadian winter. Well, that's a huge, uh, spread. Um, and that's really the most important thing. Um, you know, we've, we've developed some heightened safety, uh, requirements. We've got, uh, our chargers operate. Uh, uh, faster than the average charger does. Um, we're made in America, uh, so we're the only charging company that's made in America uh, that meets the the content requirements uh, to be able to certify that. Uh, we're very proud of that. Um, we're very proud of the fact that we also not only are we made in America for our commercial charger, uh, but also the residential charger that we're going to be launching this summer is also made in America. So we've proven that you can build a better piece, a better mousetrap um, uh, with better quality uh, and you can do it in America at a cheaper price. So we're cheaper than the, the stuff that's made in China or Mexico or the Philippines, um, uh, even on the residential charger side, which is a, you know, obviously a, a lower margin uh, business for us. But that I'm very proud of. Um, I'm very proud of our team uh, for being able to pull that off. Uh, so. Um, and it, you know, it's been a godsend for us during the supply chain crisis, but ultimately what we're, you know, you, you asked a question about, uh, or, you know, one of the things we've talked about in the past is about jobs in, in the green energy. We're bringing jobs into green energy. And that, that was very important for my partner and I, that we're hiring, uh, in the advanced manufacturing side, in the engineering side, in the software engineering side. Uh, these are all high-skilled jobs, uh, and even on the manufacturing side, you're getting paid a you know getting paid a salary, not a you know not a, an hourly wage. You're getting uh, health benefits and a 401k plan. For many of our employees, that's the first time they've had a healthcare plan. Wow. Um, so, uh, you know, you know, uh, you know, it's uh, it it changes it changes people's lives, and it takes a huge stress out of your life. You know. For most people, not having health insurance is a is an underlying stress condition, right? You, you've got to bid that something goes wrong, and you need healthcare. Um, so, in this country, at least, it's uh, you know I feel very proud of the fact that we've been able to been able to pull pull people out of you know one paycheck from a crisis type uh, situations. No, that's great. Going going back a little bit to um, and we're big believers in workforce development, mm-hmm. so this is music to our ears. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to go back for one second about your product. Talk about, do, are you selling mainly level two chargers that are used in, in public or parking garages? Do you have a DC fast charger? And then do you have any relationships with, say, the battery side of things? Because I know a lot of people are looking at DC fast chargers and say a grouping of them, four or five, they need to have a battery to go with it because of the intense, you know, electrical output at one point. Yeah. So yeah. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, we, we don't manufacture level threes, uh, DC fast. We only manufacture level twos. We do work with most of the big level three manufacturers, so ABB, uh, FSEC, uh, Tritium. Um, but generally, that's where somebody wants a DC fast charger as part of a broader installation. We have, a, you know, one of our we have a pharmaceutical uh, biotech company. They like to have mostly level twos, but they like to have at least one level three on site for emergency basis. Um, 
so we're not do, we're not do, we're not competing on the highway with people like uh, Electrify America or Tesla or Evigo. We we think that's you know that's a competitive market and uh, it's not where we we can really add value. Mm-hmm. Um, so we you know we focus on the level two side, uh, not that you know you know not that the level three there's anything wrong with it. It's just uh, it's just we've chosen to focus on that on that level two side. Oh no, agreed. Um, talk about and then maybe this dovetails in the next question, but. You know, when you walk, pull into a public parking garage today or a hotel parking lot, mm-hmm. you normally see two or three chargers in for the mm-hmm. whole parking lot, which is, which is great. It satisfies some demand. But five, seven years from now, we may be at the situation where probably not quite yet, but 60, 70 percent of the vehicles on the road driven by consumers are electric or some sort of plug-in hybrid. But what happens is the parking lot owner, the parking garage owner, will they have a sense of obligation or from just good marketing, good business? They have three quarters of their parking spots have a charger associated with them. Is that where we're heading to? You think? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, and and don't forget the, the the EV adoption rate is not spread evenly across the country. So if you're in Boston, seven years from now, fifty to seventy five percent of your parking lot is going to be electric. In California, it's going to be seventy five plus. Uh, Washington D.C. it's going to be seventy percent plus. Florida, Texas. Uh, you know, it's not happening evenly, but in in these hot, you know markets, um, you're gonna, you know, I, I don't think you're gonna have to wait seven years for that either. I think it's more like five years. Um, it's coming fast uh, because you know ultimately the sort of light bulb moment for me uh, was you know was dry, when I drove when a friend of mine bought an electric car before I did. I got in it. I just I, I said this is just better technology. It's fast. It's quiet. Uh, uh, it's got better technology inside the car. It's more roomy because you don't have to have an engine or a transmission hump. Uh, it doesn't cost anything to maintain it. I mean, you know, my car, I'm on my second brake fluid change and that's it. That's all I've had to do in 40,000 miles. Um, I've still got, you know, the, the brakes will probably last a hundred thousand miles. Um, so it's just a better, it's a better technology. It's more, you know, it, it, putting aside the fact that it's, it's environmental and environmental necessity. I think we would be changing to EVs purely because they're better vehicles. Um, you know, you don't have two thousand moving parts like an like an automobile. So, I think the adoption rate is is happening. It's got that same feel to it as when we went from cellular phones to smartphones. And it was, you know, it was, if you look at the actual data, it felt like suddenly everybody had a smartphone. But if you actually look at the data, it was fairly slow at first. And then suddenly, you know, people started waking up and realizing, oh, I, this is what I can do with this thing. Um, I'm going to go buy a smartphone. Um, and now, you know, there are companies, you know, like you think about all those companies that used to be out there, like Ericsson, Motorola, uh, that just, you know, are not relevant anymore uh, because they didn't adapt. Um, and, uh, you know, and it creates new platforms, right? Though, you know, this whole world is going to change. You know, people that are losers and winners, like any, any transition, um, you know, uh, wouldn't want to be an oil and gas industry right now. Uh, but in the, you know, but the utility companies, you know, are going to make a fortune. This is, this is the last time this happened in the, in the, uh, was when air conditioning became prevalent. Um, and the, the utility companies thought they'd landed on a gold mine then. This is two to three times more, uh, more important. <laughs> so yeah. I believe it. I believe it. I guess the uh, last question is, this has been a great conversation, Paul. Um, hmm. uh, you touched on a little bit about workforce development. Uh, obviously, a lot of our listeners are, are in their 20s. 
They want to get into electric vehicles and charging. It's a sexy thing for them. They feel it's the future. Um, what kind of advice do you give to anyone? Say you're running to a college student and they want to get into your industry. You know, how do they break into it? What do you recommend for them to start their path? Well, the the easy answer to that question is become an engineer, uh, because whether it's uh, you know whether it's electrical engineering, mechanical engineering. Uh, whether it's EV charging or solar or wind or, uh, you know, the new technologies we're going to have to develop to deal with climate change, like carbon capture, um, all need engineers. So if you're, you know, if you've got a math background and you, you like uh, that, become an engineer and you, you've got to jump a life. Um, you know, I would say that, you know, the, the uh, you know, there's also, you know, uh, you know, I think, um, uh, focusing on the environmental side of uh, and the policy side is important. Uh, we we need to replace uh, you know, people. My generation need to be replaced with younger people. I mean, we've we've uh, my generation screwed this all up, and we continue to ignore it. Um, so, run for office, uh, become a you know become a policymaker. Get you know get people like me out of office and and get get yourself into office because you know if we if we look at you know even even the infrastructure bill right, just scratches the surface uh, of what we need. And we can't, you know, we can't seem to get this bill back better bill passed. We absolutely need that. You know, that's a, that's a down payment, not a, not a solution. And so we got to get, you know, the old people out and uh, get the new people in uh, who've got, you know, who, who ultimately are going to have a stake in all of this, right? I mean, what we do today is going to, is going to solve uh, or not, uh, you know, and if we don't solve it, it's not going to be pretty. Now we, we, you know, I'm an optimist. Uh, I think we, as a human species, once we get, once things, you know, we get slapped around the face enough times, um, and realize that this, this is, this is a real problem. We tend to find solutions. Uh, but I think, I think that's going to come from the younger generation. So please run for office, uh, become an engineer, uh, become a policymaker. Um, because we we need that talent right now. It, it would be nice to have a few more engineers in the office as opposed to the, yes. nothing but lawyers too. So now I'm a reformed lawyer, so I, <laughs> but but I, I don't take offense at your comment. That's all right. I'm a reformed banker. I'm with you too. So uh, quickly, what is uh what's your website and where can people get more information about Juice Bar? www.juicebarcharger.com well, Paul, thank you. you. You gave us a great understanding. You really, you changed our perspective, which I think the amazing part about your conversation with you is a lot of my high school buddies, they always talk about, oh, you know, when it gets to 400 miles range, that's a tank of gas and maybe I'll consider it, but they shouldn't even be thinking that way. So thank you for giving us a new perspective and good luck to Juice Bar in the future. All right. Well, thank you. And, and to all your friends, tell them to go out and buy an EV because it's a, it's a hell of a, it's a hell of a fun car to drive. Uh, you know, I'm a, I love driving cars and uh, I've raced cars in my past and uh, there is no better. I might, the current car I have, there's no better car after. Great. Fantastic. All right. Great. Thank you very much. Uh, And we are back. Lucas, I thought Paul was a great guest. He gave us such a different perspective on how to think about electric vehicle charging uh, and, and how to get over range anxiety. I thought that was great. Yeah, it's it's good to hear somebody from the industry talking to that that knows their stuff, and it was interesting too to see his perspective. Like they weren't targeting the uh, level three charging network; they were charging 
targeting level two, which is a really good point because it's going to be much more profligate uh, with level two chargers everywhere. So that's probably a good market choice uh, on his part. Oh, I agree. Because, you know, we think about level three is always about that terror moment when you're on the highway and you got to, <laughs> you know, you got to get off because you only got 10% of your battery left. But yeah. the reality is that's only going to be one or two days of your year. So right. uh, great stuff. So you heard his website. Uh, thank you, Paul. Um, looking forward to maybe having him on in the future to hear more about his company. So with that, uh, why don't we go right into articles right after I do our fun disclaimer. The views and opinions expressed by Lucas and I are those of ourselves and not any organization we are affiliated with. And any public companies that we mentioned, we are not making any recommendation about the securities to purchase or sell of that company one way or the other. So please consult with a registered investment professional, do your homework and be safe out there. Yeah. And I have up right now too, like the juice bar website. So you can see what their charger looks like. You can see what it looks like when it's installed. Uh, Very interesting. All right. So very cool. Very cool website. So thank you. Great, great, great to see him there. Great to see everyone operating using juice bar. Yep. So, okay. So I'm going to start out. I wanted to have a rebuttal about the exploding Tesla because I wanted to, and I, it looks like uh, Mr. Rob Strumpf had the same idea I did. This is December 27th. So it's a little older, but this is all the real numbers. If you want to know what the real numbers are, what the costs are, it's all spelled out in this article. I definitely recommend it from the drive. Here's how a model Tesla S holds up after 424,000 miles. Uh, yes, it's still kicking, but not without its fair share of repairs. So they go through all the numbers here. And yes, these cars can last a million miles, which is unheard of in ICE terms, internal combustion engine. You never have an engine last more than like 300,000 miles for internal combustion or a car or what have you. So these numbers are astronomical. This guy here has owned his 2015 uh, Tesla Model S for six years. He's got 424,000 miles on it, right? So just to be clear, he has had a battery replacement. Uh, It was replaced under warranty at about 250,000 miles, meaning now his new battery pack has about 180,000 miles on it, and it has lost about 25% of its range, just to be clear, right? They have another example down here. Let's see. Uh, There's one with 401,000 miles from a 2016 Model S, racked up about $29,000 worth of maintenance and repairs. Now, that may seem like a lot, but when you divide by 400,000 miles, that's about $0.07 per mile of maintenance. So, again, like there's also a record holder here who has 921,000 miles on his EV. He has gone through two battery packs and three drive units uh, replaced during his 620,000 miles. So just to be clear, yes, they are fantastic. Yes, they have low maintenance costs. No, they don't last forever. Yes, you might have to replace your battery after 250,000 miles. To me, that seems like a great deal. It's way cheaper than replacing your ice. Um, So these are the real numbers. I didn't want to hide anything from you guys. So uh, I thought this was great to bring up. You know, it's funny because what would really be good with this article is to take this and compare it to somebody that's had a Honda Accord for 424,000 miles. 
Right. And to look at the maintenance costs, overall cost of ownership, right? Because I think the Honda Accord is one of the gold standard cars. So you can get 400,000 miles out of a Honda Accord without an engine swap. But when you talk about, you know, cost of gasoline, cost of general maintenance repairs, it still adds up. So what would that turn out to be, you know, 0.7 cents per mile versus uh, on this one here versus, um, you know, a regular ICE engine? I think that would be an awesome comparison. And in one of my articles, we're going to do a very similar comparison. <laughs> we'll talk about that. Yeah. So yeah, like 400,000 miles, that's a hundred oil changes. So yeah, you got to think about that too. Good story. Good story. Um, I wanted to bring up a big article here too. This one is uh, from Substack uh, by Noah Smith. America's top environmental groups have lost the plot on climate changes from January 14th. So he brings up this interesting conundrum that I've seen around also, which is where uh, some nimbyism has come into, you could say, environmental groups that are now opposing environmentally friendly clean energy projects. And it seems to be, right, uh, a conundrum here. Like, why are groups like the Audubon Society suing to block California wind farms, um, the NRDC supporting closing nuclear power plants, the Sierra Club opposing solar projects, um, and so there's a couple of reasons here. One, a lot of these groups were started in, say, the 60s and 70s. They were conservation groups. And the enemy at that time was development. So they are anti-development. So they see, you know, bringing in plows and plowing over land and then putting solar panels is a bad thing. So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is the Sierra Club's not really a formally organized group right anybody can start a local sierra club and get a charter from from national and then take pretty much any position they want right so there's a little bit of that too but i i think the lesson for me is we still have to be prudent right we still have to be prudent in our development of renewable energy we can't we can't just plow over forests we can't just destroy land and put up solar farms and say, hey, we're clean and green and all this, right? We do have to think about the trade-offs. We do have to think about the impact on the environment, you know, like um, uh, hydroelectric dams, right, that that destroy ecosystems um, with the, the reservoir that they build. So we do have to consider all these things. We have to make sure we're being sustainable when we do these. So really interesting arguments to get you thinking about you know, where we should be going and how we should be getting there. Yeah, I, I thought this piece was really good. Um, you know, first off, we have actually seen projects like offshore wind weaponize, like the anti-offshore wind people would use something like bird migration as a, as a way to weaponize and to stop the, the project itself. So right. using that is horrible because I don't think they care about the birds. They just care about not developing the wind farm. Secondly, we've also seen the NIMBY issues. Probably the most famous was uh, Cape Cod and how far delayed and how long delayed, you know, doing offshore wind in a perfect part of the United States was because people didn't want to see the turbine. Now it's different because people are accepting the need for green energy. So, um, you know, again, I think it's all about having these conversations up front, bringing stakeholders, you know, to a development project early on, being transparent about it. And once you're transparent about it, getting any feedback that can be positive or negative and acting on it to the best of uh, one's position. My high school um, government teacher, Mr. Kane, always said, you know, compromise is the essence of politics. 
And when it comes to these, you know, the firms or organizations blocking development, have the conversation and be prepared to compromise and let's do what's right. No more delays. We need the green energy. I don't want a bird to get hit by a windmill, but I also want a bird to breathe in fresh air when they're flying. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, so those are the ones I wanted to bring up so we can I can pass the torch over to you, Eric. Yeah, well, you know what? We have a couple of fun ones. Why don't we go to the car and driver one? All right. That kind of ties into what you're talking about. Right. This was great. The story was perfectly timed with my high school buddies asking over text messages, all horrible situation with I-95 in Virginia during that snowstorm a few weeks back. People stranded for 16 to 20 hours, and they were asking, what happens if you're stalled out on a highway in EV? Well, Car and Driver Magazine on January 21st, Connor Hoffman had the article, how can an EV keep the cabin warm when it's cold out? They found out. And what they did is I think they took a Tesla Model 3 and a Hyundai Sonata conventional gasoline engine, put them next to each other, and they found out that a Tesla Model 3 to keep the cabin at 65 degrees barely uses enough, uh, barely uses any energy. And I think the battery degraded 2.2% every hour. And so, you know, on a relatively fully charged battery, you can make it well over a day and have enough if the tow truck finally clears the road that you can probably get to a charging station. In the Tesla's case, I think it was about, um, I think, 50 miles of battery left and the battery was about 97% charged. But also they had to heat the car. The car was like they turned it on and had to heat it. So it had to get up to 65 degrees. Whereas sometimes when you're entering a highway, the car is already at 65, 70 degrees. The, we should say the Sonata also did very well. The Sonata in its very efficient engine did well. But however, when you looked at it on a kind of apples to apples basis, the Tesla beat the living crap out of the, uh, the Hyundai's conventional engine burn rate. So I think it was like almost, uh, you know, 80, 90% more efficient. So, uh, you know, and the Sonata is a very good car. We know certain people that own one. Uh, so, you know, it was just a really good comparison. Check out the article. Lucas has the statistics up here uh, that kind of, you know, give a good comparison so you can see what their assumptions were. But the fear factor, again, should go away because on a modern engine, like Paul was saying, on a modern motor and battery system, they're very efficient, long range. You're going to be able to survive being stuck on a highway in an EV in comfort. Yeah, I mean, this this shouldn't be surprising to people. I, I guess it's kind of the story that it's shocking that it's surprising to people. Yes, you're battery in your ev stores energy that you can use to keep your car warm when you're stuck uh in a traffic jam yeah so yeah i I guess we shouldn't have been shocked that this uh this was going to come out this way yep so good story uh let's go to let's go to my carbon rules yeah that one this one is from uh tradewindsnews.com which is a uh shipping uh publication this one's kind of there's a lot to digest here but it comes down to this uh, article is from January 13th uh, by Eric Permente Martin. Title is How 2023's Carbon Rules Could Be a Game Changer, quote unquote, for shipping contracts. What's happening is the IMO and EU have new regulations that are going to hold accountable ships uh, in terms of how much carbon usage they are engaged with. And it's going to have some accountability standards. And everyone is going to have to have and kind of be compliant with this energy efficiency existing ship index and uh, this carbon intensity indicator that are going to be benchmarks that are going to monitor global shipping. So what this is, is first off, the EU is actually going to subject companies to, or shippers to an emission trading system for the 1st of January. Mm -hmm. So shippers are going to have to be very cognizant, you know, and they're going to have to trade off for credits 
if they have old, you know, inefficient carbon, you know, belching ships out there. And it's going to just probably move everyone a little bit slower, a little bit faster to adopting cleaner technology out there in the shipping maritime industry. This one talks a little bit about policy, about where they need to go. But I thought this was a good article just for the fact that these types of standards are being introduced because we don't talk about how much carbon that maritime industry puts out, but it is significant. So really good story. I recommend checking it out. Yeah, this is great because so many, so many people just burn carbon without thinking about it. And it's going to take something like this to kind of wake people up, right? And say, no, you're burning carbon and dumping it in the atmosphere. And so there has to be accountability there. So hopefully this will uh, serve that function. So I look forward to seeing how the industry reacts. Yeah, uh, you know, I thought maybe we can even have one or two of the people in this article as a guest one day because they really bring up some interesting stuff. But uh, anyways, we haven't talked about shipping in a while. I think this is a good one. So last article. um, All right. Last article, Euronews.com. I know they say Euronews.green on the header, but it's Euronews.com under their Echo Innovation segment. A new biomass mapping tool can pinpoint the carbon of a single 30 meter tree. So I really like this story because we've talked ad nauseum about how we're entering this green revolution. We have limited resources, so we need to be diligent and we have to be, you know, finding the right opportunities, the right areas to invest in. This is uh, actually saying that there's new technology out there that can map the world's carbon stores and find out where carbon is actually being stored and actually to end some misperception about where carbon is not being stored. One of the interesting things in this article is that over the last couple of years, the Amazon rainforest is a net emitter of carbon, not a net um, absorber. We always say the Amazon is kind of the, the lungs of the, of the globe, but that's actually not been the case given all the activity taking place in and around the Amazon rainforest. And so that's a little bit frightening. When um, Another article they brought up is that one, you know, six years of the EU's existing vegetation can absorb the equivalent of one year of their economic output in the territory. So, you know, this is a really cool about technology, about mapping, and it just could give us the ability to find out where the hotspots are, where we need to be improving, and where we can put in better carbon sequestration policy as a country and technology, you know, both as a country basis and globally. So really recommend this article. It's a lot of fun. It's a little bit out of the box, but uh, again, we're just trying to find the way to be as efficient as possible as we enter this green revolution. Yeah, this is great. I think I've, I have looked into this recently also that the the global, even even natural carbon sinks and carbon sources are, are massive, right? And the system is complex. So the more we understand this and the more data we have on this, the better. So this is great to see. I'd like to see more along these lines. I'd like to see more literal accountability. I mean, accounting, not, not so much <laughs> accountability as in, uh, you know, putting it on people, but literally accounting for carbon, having a, a global carbon account that everybody knows and can see and is well known, you know, the atmospheric PPM is kind of doing that right now, but yeah, a little more detail would help us and and understand how complex the system is and how, you know, maybe we don't need as much drastic action as we might think. 
if we can understand this system better and, and utilize it better. So very interesting to see. Look at this. They even say carbon, China's carbon sink growth is due in part to an aggressive tree planting policy. That's amazing. So you see a lot of green here. Yeah, Very and like, interesting article. Yeah, and like you know, China—they've actually been putting, they've been trying to re, uh, reforest parts of the Gobi Desert, the eastern part, to prevent like uh, you know sand pollution from uh, you know in the skies. And I think that's what you see in the northern part of the uh, of that map there. So wow. it really, it's great. I mean, this type of mapping technology, the technology is out there, and now it's being utilized in a very smart, efficient way. So, uh, good article. Um, yeah, it's a really cool. good stuff. We focus a lot on EVs today, so. Uh, and EV charging, but I think it was worth having that conversation. Um, great guest with Paul. And uh, Lucas, tell us a little bit more about where we could find out more about the Pirates of Clean Tech. Yes, you can find us on youtube.com. You just search for Pirates of Clean Tech. You hit subscribe and you hit the little alarm bell if you want a notification for when our videos drop. Uh, that way you can follow along with us in the articles. But if you're a busy person like most people are, you probably want us on your uh, podcast when you're commuting. You can go to your favorite podcast site. We're on about a dozen podcast sites. Just search for Pirates of Cleantech, click uh, subscribe or listen, and then you can listen in while you drive or do your laundry or what have you. So. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned laundry because everyone I talk to says they listen to us while either doing laundry or washing the dishes. <laughs> so, I don't know. Maybe clean tech has something to do with cleaning and psychologically. <laughs> just clean people love talking about clean tech i don't know they just want to get cleaner and cleaner with that high efficient uh washing machine that they have but a really good episode and uh want to thank our listeners again uh we have a couple other guests we've teed up for the next couple weeks and uh we're gonna have a great time so with that i'm eric planey i am lucas finko and together we are the pirates of clean tech yar yar har har yar yar